Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Michael Fingerhood. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I'd like to welcome you and thank you for joining us today for the CMEO briefcase entitled People Living with HIV and Substance Use Disorder, Addressing Barriers to Viral Suppression. Today's program is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. Again, Michael Fingerhood, I'm the Director of the Division of Addiction Medicine, Professor of Medicine and Public Health at Johns Hopkins Baby Medical Center in Baltimore, and I'll be the moderator for today's activity. Delighted to be joined today by my distinguished colleague, Dr. Carol Dawson-Rose. Dr. Dawson-Rose, could you please introduce yourself? Sure, thank you. Hello and thank you, uh, Dr. Fingerhood. My name is Carol Dawson-Rose. I am a professor and chair of the Department of Community Health Systems at the University of California, San Francisco in the School of Nursing. I want to review our learning objectives uh, for this briefcase. They are inclusive of implementing strategies to overcome barriers to viral suppression in people living with HIV who have co-occurring substance use disorders. Let's review our patient, Cassie, a 28-year-old, presented to reestablish care at the Community Health Clinic after a prolonged absence. Hi, Cassie. Uh, my name's Carol, Dr. Uh, Carol Dawson-Rose, um, and I'd be happy with you calling me Carol. I think this is the first time I've seen you and met you, and it's very nice to meet you. And I'm happy that you're here and able to take some time to be with me today. Hi, Carol. Um, it's nice to meet you, too. Great. Do you go by Cassie, or is there another name that you prefer? Uh, Cassie's fine. Great. I'm looking forward to getting to know a little bit about you today. Thanks. I have some questions uh, to ask you, Cassie, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, Great. Um, I'd if you're open to it, I'd love to hear about um, some of the important things in your life um, and to hear more about why you're here today. My hope and goal for our visit today is that we can work together to make sure any of the medical plans, you know, that we're going to come up with fit into your life instead of asking you to fit into a medical plan that might not be right for you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. No. I'm not sure what to tell you, though. Like, do you want to know why I'm not taking any HIV meds or what? Yeah, well, that's part of what I'd like to hear at some point. Um, and I know that's an important part of why you're here today, maybe. Um, but I was thinking if we could start with you telling me a little bit about something that you like to do, um, something that you enjoy doing. Um, well, I, I like to paint. Um, I used to paint a lot, especially during high school, but... Um, I don't get to do it very often now. Um, painting, that's a that's a big um, event in people's lives. Um, and it sounds like it's a great way to express um, yourself. What kinds of things do you like to paint? Um, well, I like to paint scenes of people, like, doing things together and just having fun. So, like, a family playing in a park or something. <laughs> um, and I like it because it just kind of helps me, like, relax and feel at peace when I'm doing it my mind is kind of like I don't know it goes quiet but like in a good way um, mm -hmm. and I get lost in it like especially when I'm working on the little details and um, yeah I just feel like time kind of goes by and I don't even notice and then I feel really good when it's done because like I've created something beautiful I don't know I I guess it just maybe feels good to finish something for once it sounds like painting has been really important for you, and it's more than just um, a hobby, if you will. Um, 
it, do you, I'd love to see maybe some examples of your work someday, if that's something you're open to, bringing in and sharing or sharing online. Sure. Great. Um, you mentioned, Cassie, when you were talking earlier that um, you haven't been able to paint much lately. Can you tell me a little bit about what's keeping you from doing that? Um, well, I just, like, I have a lot of stuff going on with family mm -hmm. and work and stuff. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about what's going on with family and work for you? Uh, well, my mom says that I have to clean up my act or she'll take my daughter away from me. So, um, I mean, I don't get to see her that much as is because my mom won't let me live there while I'm like this. And mm -hmm. I don't like to see my daughter, you know, I don't like my daughter to see me like this. So I have to get clean. I'm trying. It sounds like your daughter is really important for you and might be a big motivation for you to um, get clean. Can you tell me a little bit more if you're comfortable about your current living situation since you're not living with your daughter? Um, yeah, I kind of live with my ex. Or, I mean, he lets me crash there as long as I have sex with him. And he actually gives me the drugs most of the time. But that's, that's why he's my ex, because I'm, I'm trying to get out of that. I need to get my own place. I just don't give any very many hours at work. Um, I'm a waitress and uh, the tips aren't great because I get scheduled a lot during the day. Um, so I know that I, I need to get another job that pays more, but I just, um, I, ha I haven't looked yet. Yeah, that's Cassie. That's okay. I'm here to help. Uh, you know, it's okay for you to tell me anything. I don't have any judgments about what's happening in your life. It sounds like the situation that you're living with right now is really challenging. Um, is there anyone that you have in your life that you feel that understands you and supports you? Um, or do you feel like you're able to set aside your own time to work on goals you have for what you talked about with housing and work and getting clean? Um, not, I mean, I don't really feel like I have time for my own stuff. Like, I've just spent most of my time, like, just working and trying to raise my daughter since she was born. So, um, yeah, it's it's pretty hard. Um, I was in a car accident a couple years ago, and um, I guess I'm lucky or something that I ended up only in the hospital for, like, a few weeks instead of dead like my dad. But I was uh, pretty banged up, and they had me on all these pain meds. And then uh, a few weeks after I got out of the hospital, they were like, well, everything's fine. You shouldn't have any more pain. <laughs> but I definitely did. Um, I know I should have been stronger for my daughter, but it was really hard to do anything except, like, lay around for a long time. And um, so eventually I got, you know, tired of my mom telling me that I was wasting my life. And so um, it was kind of like, I don't know. I knew that she pretty much hated me because I survived and my dad didn't. So um, I left and uh, went to go stay with this guy who was really nice to me when no one else was. Um, yeah, it turns out he didn't really stay nice, but um, that's my ex that I crash with now. So my mom kind of always hated him 
And uh, now the only time we really talk is when uh, she's yelling at me about being a terrible mother. Well, that sounds like um, that's a lot, uh, Cassie. It sounds like the accident had a really big impact on your life, um, your injury, your dad dying, your relationship with your mom, and subsequently your daughter, and um, that things have been really difficult uh, since then. Um, sometimes being ex having experiencing these events, we call them traumatic events, um, can lead us down unexpected paths that are really tough to, you know, move away from. Yeah, that makes sense because, uh, well, nothing's really gone right since then. Uh, but I don't know, I guess it wasn't really that great to begin with. Like, um, I found out I had HIV when I was in the hospital after I almost overdosed. And uh, at the time, like, I felt really, I don't know, at first kind of dirty. And then I was pretty numb after that. I mean, I just felt like, what does it matter? Like, I shouldn't even really be alive anyway. So, But I always say, and my mom always tells me, like, at least I didn't infect my daughter. Yeah. Um, so, Cassie, can you tell me a little bit more about your daughter? It sounds like you care a lot about her, and she's really important for you. Yeah, I do. <laughs> she's three, and she's beautiful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just... Um, I, I haven't been the best mom. I uh, I know that she deserves so much better, um, but I feel like I'm trying my best. <laughs> Things are just uh, really rough. Like I'm always broke, and um, well, I can't get away from my ex for more than a day because once the withdrawals start, like really all I care about is getting my fix. So it all just what well, most of the time feels pretty hopeless. Um, I mean, I honestly don't even, I don't even really care about how I feel right now. I just want my daughter to be able to be with me. But um, yeah, I mean, everything's pretty messed up. Um, I'm wondering, um, Cassie, if you, I could ask you some more questions about the things that you shared with me about your substance use. Um, if that's okay, we do have resources in, in the center, in the clinic, um, that might be helpful to you. Are you interested in hearing more and talking more about your substance use? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I can do that. I mean, I, I don't really know what's going to help, but I, I'm kind of willing to try anything at this point. She has a history of HIV, not currently on medication. She found out her diagnosis when she was in the hospital a year ago um, when she had a, a back injury for which she started on pain medication, consistently uh, was receiving opioids from a variety of clinics uh, that we could see in the PDMP. She does have a child uh, who's three years old. He was an important part of her life and certainly factors into uh, how we come up with a treatment plan uh, as it is a motivator for her to uh, do well, both related to HIV and to her history of substance disorder. Uh, she's had no complications of HIV. Uh, in the past, it was briefly on a two-pill regimen, um, but it hasn't been filled for uh, quite a while. Um, she has uh, HIV viral load of, of 40,000, CD4 cattle 350. Um, she is not hepatitis C positive, uh, and she does not have hepatitis B. Uh, she last filled a prescription for uh, oxycodone a few months ago, but was open over the fact that she has uh, used opioids 
from the street as well as methamphetamine. So people living with HIV um, report disproportionately high levels of exposure to traumatic events in childhood and in adulthood and sometimes continuing um, across their life. I want to review a little bit the connection between trauma, HIV, and substance use disorder. And uh, just briefly, adversity in childhood or a measurement that we call ACEs is something that gives us information about what happened to people when they were children. Um, and there's a very strong literature that links those ACEs experience as a childhood, it, during childhood, to substance use um, disorder. And that's been seen in populations of people without HIV as well as HIV. Um, in several studies, people living with HIV over, you know, nearly two-thirds of them, up to 70% have experienced trauma. 60% um, have used substances that haven't been prescribed for them. And approximately one-quarter um, of the people living with HIV report uh, treatment for substance use disorder. Uh, and so some of the things I, when we think back about Cassie, um, who reports a traumatic event in her life, also alludes to some interpersonal strife with her family um, members. Um, but we can see that she had a, an accident that sort of tipped her off, according to her, what she's telling us in the clinic today, to her opiate use and then subsequent heroin use. Um, and the, the other thing that I just want to say about trauma among people living with HIV um, you can, what Cassie's telling us today and what we see in a lot of individuals is they, they continue to be exposed to stressful events and traumatic events. Uh, and, um, she shared that today in terms of the struggle she's having over, um, custody of her child as well as her ex-partner that she's living with. But she has, um, a situation with her former partner where she is engaging in sex and it sounds like she's not happy about and that part of the situation with that partner is around substance use, continued substance use. When we look at how trauma, sort of a pathway, if you will, for how trauma impacts HIV care outcomes, um, that we know that trauma exposure is related to increased rates of substance use disorders and also mental health uh, problems, depression, anxiety, those things in and of itself, substance use and mental health symptoms are related or associated in the literature with increased HIV transmission behaviors that put people at risk of acquiring HIV as well as transmitting HIV. Um, it also is linked to reduced engagement in HIV care and treatment, um, and people who are less engaged or staying on their treatment um, because of substance use have an increase in their viral load, and, you know, it, it harms their immune system and we see higher AIDS-related uh, morbidity and mortality. Um, there, you know, some of the other biological pieces um, that we see for substance use in HIV is re reduced immune function, um, accelerated aging, and some neurocognitive decline, as well as more frequent opportunistic infections. And so in order to meet a treatment need, as Cassie expressed, I don't want to die from AIDS, um, it's really important for us to address substance use in this population of people living with HIV 
and to be aware that trauma can impact that substance use. The discussion uh, that we're going to have now is about trauma-informed care. I just wanted to clarify, in, the, in Cassie's case, there's physical trauma and there's emotional trauma. And, and I just want to clarify that it, it's in this circumstance, we're, we have used the term trauma to refer to both. But when we talk about trauma-informed care, it's really trying to understand the emotional aspect of trauma. Uh, and that in most instances, there isn't necessarily any physical trauma that is related, although there was in Cassie's case. Um, and really, trauma-informed care is trying to build rapport with patients, getting to know them as a person, uh, becoming their advocate, and becoming a support for them. And it's all really based on carefully developing rapport and trust with patients. Um, and it's very not judgmental as well. Um, it's not blanket statements of what happened to you, but it's gaining understanding of individuals. We, it really opens up very um, uh, emotional discussion. And it's not unusual to have visits uh, in which all we talk about are ability to, to cope um, and how she copes on a daily basis and things like anticipatory coping, meaning knowing if there's a stressful situation coming up that might remind her of trauma, such as a certain day or a holiday, how are you going to work through this? So, so the trauma-informed perspective is really uh, realizing that things that sometimes aren't predictable can really trigger strong emotions. Knowing uh, how to come up with plans to stay safe, who to reach out to. For all patients with addiction, including HIV, most visits related to trauma from care, we discuss three things. We talk about undoing shame, because shame is a really strong component. And uh, I have a cartoon I share with uh, patients where the provider says, um, the best thing you do for yourself is not drink or to be not use drugs. And the patient says back, well, I don't deserve the best. What else can I do? Um, and that's a perspective that we should think about as we try to team up with patients in care and try to improve their health and their lives. Certainly mood disorder uh, and, and PTSD are a strong component. Uh, in many settings, trauma includes witnessing violence related to drug use, um, witnessing someone's overdose. So trauma could take many different forms. I bring it to the surface that individuals, sometimes knowingly, some not as knowingly, use a substance in order to avoid or manage their discomfort. And that we're going to recognize that that discomfort exists, but we want to figure out alternative ways in order to help them take care of themselves. So uh, the audience response question is, what is meant by contingency management in the context of substance disorder treatment? So the correct answer is behavioral therapy is one aspect of optimal conditioning or reward for behavior. You heard mentioned during Cassie's interview a mention of contingency management, and this was specifically mentioned as a treatment for stimulants for methamphetamine. To date, we really don't have effective medications for stimulant use, such as methamphetamine. But more and more, we have this tool called contingency management, which is a positive and really fits in with trauma-informed care and empowering patients. Historically, there used to be a punitive view of individual addiction, uh, and that was in many realms, right? So uh, we used to think that people with addiction are bad people, so the way to get them not to use was to incarcerate or punish them. And that even entered into uh, treatment programs where, for instance, on s some methadone treatment programs, if someone was found to be using 
another drug, they had their dose of methadone decreased. So that was punitive, right? And that's never been shown to be effective. But conditioning management is a way of trying to reward positive behavior rather than punish negative behavior. The, the ability to give a reward, for an example, in this setting for Cassie, it might be if you're going to be doing urine drug screening and that urine drug screen is negative for a stimulant, that some reward is received. That reward can be monetary, it could be a prize, but it's a positive for um, not using a, a stimulant. Um, many of our lives work that same way, right? So we drive carefully so that our uh, auto insurance policy uh, installments are lower. It works on the same kind of idea of rewarding uh, a contingency that, that we want by giving a reward. There are many uh, research studies and actually even now grants allow uh, in this context of treatment for energy management to be used, including uh, with uh, financial incentives. Going back to um, trauma-informed care and how that links to contingency management, but how trauma-informed care promotes adherence and engagement. Um, so some of the tenets, if you will, of trauma-informed care is um, we talked a little bit about earlier, which was um, not asking or coming from the perspective um, of what's wrong with you, why can't you get this right, um, but really coming from a perspective where you're trying to understand what happened to people and how that's impacting them now. Um, some of the rapport building that is a part of a trauma-informed care interaction um, in the clinical setting is really use, using open-ended questions, um, seeing really the patient as a collaborator and someone that's engaged in uh, their care, fostering um, self-efficacy of patients and really taking their lead on what they're prioritizing right now. Um, one of the um, things that with Cassie that was pretty clear is that um, her big motivation was her child and her relationship with her daughter. And so that's a really important piece to really, um, you know, build on with her. Uh, when we're thinking about um, other ways that trauma-informed care could promote adherence and engagement, as Dr. Fingerhood was just talking about contingency management, which is, is aligned with the trauma-informed care approach because it reinforces positive things um, uh, among, you know, in patients that you're using contingency management with. Um, it's, and it's very, it's non-punitive. It's not blaming you. So we have a a solid um, body of evidence that it is effective. Um, it doesn't work for everybody, and it doesn't work in every system, but we do have a body of evidence that sh supports uh, contingency management as a treatment, <clears throat> excuse me, for substance use, and in this situation as we're talking methamphetamine use specifically. Um, substance use disorder and mental health screenings uh, and treatment are important in situations uh, where people, um, you know, we're taking care of people with HIV who have a substance use disorder. Um, those individuals are also at high risk for mental health um, conditions because of the stress, because of some of the situations they've been in over their life, as was discussed in the case that Dr. Fingerhood just uh, relayed. Um, depression and substance use have the biggest impact on HIV care continuum and and have been a real persistent uh, problem in HIV care is how do we deal with depression among people living with HIV, especially when there is a co-occurring substance use disorder. 
um, a depression screening, some of the screenings that we have here that are things that you can turn to in your clinical setting, um, and the, the names are here. Um, you can follow and look those up, but the, these are standardized measures that allow us to screen, to look at, you know, what's the level of depression, symptoms that people have, um, anxiety, and then also can give us information about substance use and what, which substances people are using, whether or not people are using different substances as in Cassie's situation where she reported use of heroin as well as methamphetamine and opiate use um, prior to and prior to her initiation. Um, it, so some of the let's reflect um, on some of on what Cassie might need to know in a care plan for HIV and substance use disorder and how we can incorporate some of the principles of trauma-informed care. Um, and really what opportunities do we have to incorporate trauma-informed care with Kathy, Cassie? Um, so mental health needs um, and Cassie's needs, as well as, <clears throat> excuse me, substance use disorder, what's happening with that, and then some therapeutic options for substance use disorder. I was gonna add, I think without getting to know Cassie and without realizing uh, her background, it might seem like, well, what's so hard about taking a single pill once a day? It's all in the context of everything else. And unless we address the context, the simple, there is no simpleness to taking a single pill once a day. Um, that addressing all the other aspects of trying to help Cassie improve her life, figure out what's meaningful for her uh, is really the, the, the crucial aspect. And once those are addressed and she, you know, she feels better about herself, and her situation, then it will be more matter of fact to be able to take a single pill once a day, I think. I mean, I think some of the some of her needs and, and some of her motivations, and we mentioned earlier that a big part of her motivation is her relationship with her daughter. Um, but another thing that she expressed um, willingness and motivation for was changing her living situation with her former partner, which she attributes to, um, it's related you know, to her safety, um, as well as a setting where the substance use is occurring on a regular basis. And so pulling together um, some of these options for, you know, medication-assisted treatment, in this case, buprenorphine, but then also um, creating a space where that some of that stress can be alleviated if we're able to move her into a different housing situation, whether or not it's related to substance use treatment or just a different situation that's supported for her in order to embark on um, taking, getting started on her medication and then maintaining it over time. Uh, and that same thing, I usually make sure that I'm uh, congruent to what patients think by asking like, what do you think would make, what's the scenarios that would make it most likely that you would succeed as we try to do this? Um, and making, sh making sure that I'm not missing something, uh, even though things like housing, and um, uh, treatment for morphine seem obvious, but I usually then make sure that I'm not missing something. Yeah, I think that's an important point. I think it, a lot of times um, in in patients um, who have a substance use disorder, whenever they express any kind of readiness um, or openness to um, changing that, it it seems like it's important. But it but it I agree, it is important to find out what are the priorities or what are the 
pieces that Cassie in this situation would like to have be different. We have an audience response question for you that we'd like you to put in a response for, which is after Cassie presents to the community um, health clinic today, what is the best recommendation for treating her substance use disorder? So um, the answer is C, which is to establish some of the therapeutic work that Cassie said she was open to, in this case, cognitive behavioral therapy, and meeting with a therapist to do some of the things that we've talked about in this case, which was to identify what are the highest priorities for Cassie um, and trying to put together support that will enable her to move towards her priorities and her goals and also to initiate buprenorphine um, and, and have that be part of the response to addressing her substance use. Um, now we're going to return to Cassie's case and see how trauma-informed care can be integrated into discussion of a care plan with Cassie. So Cassie, so that we can best figure out a treatment plan that could work for you, um, what would you say your goals are right now? Can you say a little bit about that? Well, I, I don't want to die of AIDS or anything. Uh, I, just, I want my daughter to have a better life, um, and I need, I need to get clean and um, need to function and be able to work while doing that. So, I don't know, basically uh, fix everything. <laughs> yeah, everything Everything sounds like a lot of pieces to look at at once. Um, why don't we talk about one thing at a time and see how manageable that feels? Okay. Is that okay? Yeah, that's, that's fine. Okay, so one thing that you brought up as an obstacle to changing your job and changing your relationship with your daughter was your substance use. Um, do you feel comfortable talking to me and exploring some options that could help you manage that piece? Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, we can talk about that. Um, I don't want to go to a methadone clinic again, though, because, um, like, you miss one time and they basically say, don't come back. Yeah, the methadone clinic um, is one option. Um, if we want to start with treatment, medication treatment, um, but it sounds like that option didn't work well for you in the past, and it doesn't always work well for everybody. There are other medication-based treatment options, though, and one option that doesn't require you to go to the clinic every day is buprenorphine or suboxone. It's similar to methadone. You take it every day, but at home, so you don't have to go to the clinic to dose. Okay. Um, does that work as well as methadone? Yeah, it does. It does work. Um, and whether people use methadone or buprenorphine um, to help with opioid use, it usually depends on which op options are available and fit your life circumstances best. Does that make sense? Um, okay. If I wanted to try it, when, when can I start? Well, we could come up uh, with a plan for starting it today. We have doctors and nurses on our team that have specialized training in starting buprenorphine with patients. We call it inducting, induction. And one of the things they're going to ask before you start is how long it's been since you used any opiate, including heroin um, or other things that you may have used. Because the best time to start the medication is when you're beginning to have withdrawal symptoms. And that's something you talked about earlier, having those symptoms. Yeah, yeah. Um... And I think, I think I'm starting to definitely feel it now. Okay. 
one thing that I want to make sure of is that we get you a naloxone kit. If you or someone else around you overdoses while using opiates, it's important to have it there because it could help reverse the effects of an overdose. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I guess that makes sense. But um, do I need to see another doctor for all these things? Um, no, uh, I can provide those things as part of your visit today and I'll, I'll develop a plan um, for you based on our discussion today. Oh, okay, cool. That's, uh, that's a little easier. So I also want to talk about, in addition, um, for the, your methamphetamine use. While we don't have similar medications that can assist you with treatment um, for methamphetamine use, we do offer um, a program that includes contingency management and cognitive behavioral therapy, which has been a helpful way for other people who use methamphetamines and want to stop use. Um, contingency management is a program we have through our clinic that offers a reward or an incentive for you um, for your continuation of treatment and the engagement with our care team. We also have a social worker that can work with you to find safe housing while you're working on these things, if that's something you're interested in. Yeah, well, yeah, I think that would be really, really helpful. Um, and if there if there's a therapy that works with my schedule, then I might be able to make that work, but I I don't think I can do too many appointments right now. Um, and then also, um, what options do I have for HIV? Is there a cheap way that I can get treated? I mean, they talked about starting medication like back when I was diagnosed before, but um, it, well, it just didn't work out. Sure. Um, I'm happy to hear that, uh, you know, addressing your HIV is important for you. Um, there are several once-a-day medications that work very effectively to suppress the virus um, and can help to support your immune system and keep it healthy um, and prevent you from getting other infections um, and dying, as you alluded to earlier. Um, these once-a-day pills combine several different medications into one tablet, and very few people report side effects with these meds. So we, you know, we think that they work pretty well. Okay. Um, how do I get that medication? Well, we can write a prescription for you today, and then part of your visit will work with the case management team that can go over any kind of healthcare or insurance coverage that you have, and there are other options for covering medication costs as well. And um, we can ensure that we can find one that's going to work for you so we can make the medications available to you. Great, great, yeah, and I can talk to them. Great, so let me get you the plan that we discussed. I'm gonna summarize it in your uh, record here, and I'll make a copy for you and share it with the team. I can connect you, connect you next with one of the social workers from the case management team, and we can make sure that the pharmacy can provide you with the medications that we discussed. Um, how do you feel with that plan? We're here to support you in your next step, so I want you to Hear that too, but how do you feel about it? Yeah, thanks. Um, I mean, I'm honestly like pretty nervous. Um, I, it feels like a lot to me right now, but I think that I'm, I'm, I think I'm ready to try these two things. Great. So let's circle back and, dis and discuss how we can, as uh, clinicians, think about designing HIV care plans while integrating substance use disorder care plans simultaneously and discuss recommendations for this population by the International Anti Antiviral Society from the U.S. Uh, in this slide, we are really addressing um, three things that we talked about with Cassie, 
for HIV care um, and what are some treatment options, um, as well as addressing substance use disorder, which we can prescribe um, medications to address substance use um, within an HIV specialty clinic. Um, many times methadone might have to be delivered outside of the HIV specialty clinic, although that might be different in different places. Um, but it usually means going to another site um, to obtain medication. And then treating any co-occurring um, medical uh, or mental health um, problems or diagnoses. Um, so what, you know, substance use treatment that's integrated at HIV, one of the ways that we can address that most clearly is to provide screening and treatment um, for substance use disorders. When we're looking at antiretroviral treatment options for patients with HIV and substance use, we know that people um, with substance use disorder who are also living with HIV are at a higher risk for non-adherence to therapy. And part of that is, um, depending on the substance people are using, they can be a little disorganized um, and have different priorities than taking medication and a pill once a day. Uh, it's, it's really important to individualize treatment plans that work for people. Um, and, you know, this might include options, as we talked to Cassie about, once, once a day treatment, um, which includes safe and effective combination HIV medications um, that have a few monitoring requirements. And we are taking a look on this slide uh, at some data that look at um, treating people and starting treatment and how quickly uh, viral load um, can change across time. Um, we And also um, really prioritizing the, you know, having people or encouraging and, you know, addressing, you know, maintenance and staying on the treatment for substance use disorders. Um, now we can talk a little bit about treatment for opiate use disorders that can be provided in your HIV clinic. These are our options, and you can see listed a fully agonist methadone, uh, partial agonist buprenorphine, which we focused on, and tagonist naltrexone, which really is not as well accepted, and the best data for a medication saving lives in people, individuals with opiate disorder offer, is with methadone buprenorphine. Now, in Cassie's case, she uh, um, opted for buprenorphine. She had been on Methadone. Methadone means you have to go somewhere. Often, if someone has a child, that's more difficult um, having to go somewhere every day. We did have some relaxation of take-home rules during this time of COVID, but a lot of those have been put back in place. Uh, buprenorphine can be used with or without other behavioral interventions. It usually should be individualized based on patient need and how to optimize the likelihood of success. There's no longer an X waiver that's required in order to prescribe buprenorphine. And importantly, there are no drug interactions with HIV medications and buprenorphine, so no particular thought has to be given related to uh, the changing of any dose or interaction. Um, so some of the options for treatment for opioid use disorder that were presented here, and we can see that there are different medications that have shown efficacy with treating opioid use disorder, and um, as was said, um, you know, Cassie chose the buprenorphine, which seems like it might be something that could easily fit into her life that she could be prescribed and maintain on a daily basis. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the treatments for stimulant use disorder. 
And what we talked about in the case with Cassie, which we know from the several studies that are going on and have gone on, that there's not sufficient evidence to recommend um, for or against pharmacotherapy for cocaine use, uh, amphetamine use, methamphetamine use disorder. Um, we have some behavioral therapy options, um, but let's on this slide we have a review of things that we could offer to people. Cognitive behavioral therapy, which is really an approach that's done by somebody who's specifically trained in um, providing this kind of um, therapeutic intervention for individuals, can really be helpful for stimulant use. And one of the reasons that it can be so helpful is because it's a way to try to order people's disordered thoughts um, and beliefs and maladaptive behaviors. So we're trying to look at ways that we can, you know, work with people to change some of their behaviors. Um, recovery therapy or drug counseling and community enforcement, um, which is a way that some people are treated um, for substance use. And there are a little, you know, there's a different kinds of results for um, drug counseling or community reinforcement. But it is important. It seems that there are, it is an important um, area where people can learn how to refuse um, drugs in different situations. And then also really focusing on building social networks that are more focused on limited, limiting substance use. Um, and then we have uh, contingency management. And contingency management seems to work really well. It's a positive. Um, reinforcement, and we were talking about about that earlier. It's incentivized where people um, are asked to um, provide specimens, and we see in urine specimens that there is no, uh, you know, when they're tested, which can be done on site, we don't see any substances in the urine that they're giving us when they come into a setting. And we we've done this through. Um, remote options as well, and it, it's there's a, a different ways to to enact that, and they've been very helpful. Um, they seem to work best when they're linked to a therapeutic intervention, such as cognitive behavioral therapy. So let's review our treatment plan for Cassie. Um, at the forefront, perhaps from her words, that she or that she doesn't want to lose custody of her daughter, and that really is in her case was above her concern about her health. Um, and behavioral therapy will help you to address these issues and stimulant use as well. Buprenorphine will help with opioid use disorder and as well as with adherence to treatment plans for cognitive behavioral therapy. And all these together will assist with her finding regular work and uh, ability to maintain a schedule that works for her and her child. So you often use the acronym SMART as we try to look at what we're trying to do in this individual patient. Um, SMART stands for Specific, Measurable, Attainable, Relevant, and Timely. And uh, in a way, this is a summary of what we've tried to convey uh, throughout this uh, uh, webinar. Uh, it's using an, an empathetic, non-judgmental, patient-centered approach, what will work for you, uh, rather than dictating what we think is the right plan. And it finds needs and motivations for treatment for people uh, living with HIV and also current substance disorders. Optim optimally, we should be integrating substance sort of treatment into treatment plans for HIV and doing it in the same setting. Um, we need to individualize all of these pieces, HIV, substance disorder, and mental health, uh, as we try to meet needs for every patient. And the background is, is clearly that in order for this to be effective, we have to do our best building rapport 
um, with our patients and recommend programs for community connection and involvement as well. Today's uh, CMEO briefcase is part one of a four-part series of case-based activities. Be sure to check out the other activities, switching ART due to treatment resistance, team approach to addressing comorbidities in aging populations of people living with HIV, and antiretroviral therapy for people living with HIV who are pregnant or have childbearing potential. Be safe and take care of yourself so you can provide the best care possible to your patients.